Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store. Detroit is different, back in full effect, and you know, we're definitely going to give information that's empowering people, empowering people about so much that's needed throughout the community. That is the heart of what Detroit is different is all about. So uh, this is someone that's been on the podcast before and also like legacy member too because his pops was on the podcast and um, definitely an honor of uh, the legacy he left with Detroit and so many others. Kofi Kenyatta, how are you? I'm doing good, man. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And uh, today you're representing something and a project that uh, took some time and development, mm -hmm. but the beauty of it came together. And it's an organization you work with, uh, mm -hmm. and you're working with this organization for some years now. Um, it's uh, transcended. It's definitely impacted so many different Detroiters. Um and the organization is up together, um, empowering a lot of people that uh, are dealing with, I guess, what will be labeled uh, poverty uh, with less resources and not being provided what we need. As we know mm -hmm. that Detroit is one of these places, but so many other places across the nation mm -hmm. struggle with making sure that uh, needs can be met, uh, ends can be met. And this has been something that you've been working with for a while, and now you're working in policy with it and programming with it and just seeing the vision of how a universal basic income is something that not only should be idealistic for Americans, but a reality for Americans as it's a reality for many other people across the globe. So with all of that and that long runway for people <laughs> to see, um, Up Together, man, let's talk about Up Together. What's yeah. Up Together? Absolutely, man. Thank you for that introduction, man. So Up Together is a national organization. And so we do a lot of work here in the city of Detroit, but we're actually headquartered in Oakland, California. Mm -hmm. um, but we have uh, sites and funds all across the country. And so we're 700,000 plus members strong Whoa, uh, across the country. Wait, stop that for a second. <laughs> 700,000. Absolutely. Okay, that's Absolutely. a lot. That's a big membership. Absolutely. It's a big membership. And we experience uh, tremendous growth, unfortunately, because of the pandemic. Mm. Uh, uh, and so pre-pandemic, we had a little under 6,000 members nationwide, hmm. uh, but we developed a reputation to be able to get dollars out the door quickly to people in need. Uh, and so when a lot of our philanthropic and government partners uh, received resources uh, to get to the people, um, they wanted to utilize a platform that had a proven track record of doing so efficiently. Uh, and so we received a lot of CARES Act dollars, a lot of uh, general fund dollars, a lot of philanthropic dollars in order to reach the people who were experiencing a crisis due to the pandemic. And so a lot of uh, our members were out of work or they had additional expenses. Uh, and as you and I both know, having that little extra cash uh, can be pivotal, can be transformative. Uh, and so that's what we were able to do. And that's why we were able to see such a tremendous growth um, over the course of the pandemic. Um, but cash is just one element of our work. Uh, we have three pillars, uh, cash, choice, and community. And so when we talk about cash, we are fundamental believers that when people have adequate capital, um, they are able to utilize uh, the funds as they deem fit um, to achieve whatever their goals are. Uh, we believe that the people are experts in their own lives. Uh, and so when they have access to resources and opportunities, they tend to excel. 
Uh, and uh, the other component is choice. Uh, we don't believe in dictating how individuals or families utilize the funds. Uh, we believe in family agency. Uh, and then thirdly, community. Uh, community, uh, you are an expert in uplifting uh, your community here in Detroit. Uh, we are firm believers that in order to achieve as an individual, you have to have a strong support system. Uh, and so we want to make sure that all of our partners and stakeholders recognize uh, and invest in the power of community. Uh, and then the through line through all of those pillars is racial equity. Uh, we are believers that uh, in order to achieve our broad vision, uh, that we have to have a racial equity lens. Uh, and so that is the work that we've been doing. We began here in the city of Detroit in 2014. Um, I led that effort as the local site director. We had a goal of reaching 500 uh, households. We were able to achieve that through the support of some of the local foundations as well as some of the national funders. Uh, and then that, that number exceeded to over 6,000 households uh, right here in the city of Detroit, uh, even more across Michigan uh, due to the pandemic and because of uh, the strong philanthropic support uh, as well as some government support to help scale and expand our work uh, to meet people where they are um, during the pandemic. And uh, that is such a, 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 a practical thing that you're providing. So for people that are watching, mm -hmm. um, know that uh, I've definitely engaged and we're going to talk a lot of this special project that Up Together launched. But even before this special project, uh, when Up Together was FII, mm -hmm. uh, we were a collective. Uh, I, my sister, Dara, uh, David, my friend Mayo, it, it was a collective of us mm -hmm. working in that. And it was unique just to sit uh, the 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 model uh, of that was basically families coming together mm -hmm. monthly meeting and discussing not just financial but just like different life patterns of, of what would be happening and, and it was also some some tasks that we were tasked with as far as like journaling uh task of if we had uh a, a savings goal that could be met and matched right. um, and, and staying with that savings goal. Uh, some of this Detroit is different equipment comes from back then and, and meeting with that savings goal and, and really seeing how collectively a group of people can work around saying like, all right, um, you know, how do we have this pot of money? Um, mm -hmm. How do we have other resources? Uh, how do we collectivize beyond just the whole concept of, you know, uh, dealing with people as if like uh, finances are something that it, it, you can be so sh ashamed of or mm -hmm. so secretive about mm -hmm. and not <clears throat> approaching some of the um, some of the financial challenges in life as if you're just one, because everyone, I believe, should have an understanding that the way business approaches financing is always bringing in multiple parties, looking for multiple assets, looking for multiple resources. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, L Little Caesars Arena was built a lot upon the tax dollars of Detroiters, Absolutely. even though it was designed and developed. And we know the business functions from one of the wealthiest families in Michigan and in the Midwest region. Uh, but it was a collective that brought that together. So applying these principles that make so much sense in business to families is is 
should not be as ingenious as it is. <laughs> it shouldn't be as abnormal as right. it is, but it is abnormal. So bringing people together around these ideas actually brings a different synergy. It, you you figure out other resources. You sit in meetings and you say, hey, they're saying I need this, that, and the other. And then someone says, well, you can maybe approach it from this way. You can maybe approach it from this lens. Mm -hmm. Just all centered around this. Mm -hmm. And these discussions about money can be very personal because it, it's tough. You know, you have friends, you know, you don't want to burden your friends or your family like, hey, you know, things are tight. Or on the flip side, if if you do land, you know, you, you come upon some dollars mm -hmm. from whatever may reason. You may hit the lotto. Uh, you may have like a, an insurance policy payout or something mm -hmm. like that. What do you do? Who do you talk to? Who do you trust? Up Together provided resources in reference to that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and uh, I think really the community provides their own resources. And mm -hmm. so our goal is to really highlight yeah. the work that is being done in communities across the country all the time. And I just want to go back really quickly to something you mentioned um, around Little Caesars Arena uh, and how uh, the taxpayers of the city of Detroit really back that whole uh, construction, project. that project. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so what would it look like for uh, a city of Detroit or what would it look like in the world when we invest in people uh, the same way we invest in uh, multi-million dollar corporations, uh, individuals, right? Uh, and so we, we tend to have this, by we I mean uh, elected officials, our, our governing society tends to believe in trickle-down economics, right? When you invest in these corporations, they then uh, bring businesses into uh, or bring uh, uh, jobs into uh, the community, uh, and that is how we uplift and build economic mobility. Uh, well, we know uh, that trickle-down economics has failed. Uh, and so what would it look like to invest in our greatest asset, which are our people? Right. What would it look like to give tax breaks uh, and incentives to the small black owned Detroit based businesses here in the city of Detroit, which are our lifeblood? What would it look like to invest in communities? What would it like to invest in community members? Uh, and when I say invest, I, I mean like actual capital, um, but also uh, invest in opportunities uh, in other resources outside of capital. Uh, I, I think that is the vision that I have for the city of Detroit, that we, we treat our people um, like we, we treat these corporations um, by investing in them and supporting them to get what, uh, to help them achieve what they, what they set out to do. And that's really the, the work of Up Together um, that we do all across the country is really uh, providing a limited amount of resources to people uh, and, and, and documenting their journey and working to really change the narrative. We, we have some really entrenched deficit-based narratives uh, and also racist narratives uh, around people who are experiencing poverty, uh, is that they are experiencing poverty because of their own individual failing. Uh, and we at Up Together know that these are systemic issues um, that have created a condition for poverty to flourish. Uh, Detroit is still uh, the biggest, most impoverished city uh, in this country. And it has been for quite some time. And, and that should be, a, it, to me, it is an embarrassment. It is a shame. Uh, because to, in order to have the, the blackest city and the poorest city, um, that is intentional. Uh, and, and so I think there are things that we can do intentionally to change that. Uh, and it's going to require not only the will of uh, individuals downtown, it's going to uh, really require the will of the people uh, to come together, bringing in that community element. You know, we have to demand more. 
uh, as a community, uh, and we have to do so as a collective. Uh, and Up Together and other organizations are here to assist in, in that regard, but it's really going to take the effort of the people uh, in order to uh, really achieve the long-term changes that we feel uh, needs to take place, not only in the city, but across the, uh, the country. Very much so. And let me uh, definitely uh, add that point, as you said, Up Together, as much as I say, is an organization that support definitely not empowering but more so supporting mm-hmm. that platform for people to empower themselves Absolutely. as they already have been Absolutely. understanding that sometimes it's just that little bit extra or just being able to give a voice to a room like mm-hmm. hey i need some support here mm-hmm. you know uh and that can flourish and provide so much more opportunity so it's not one of the it's not a uh a idea in, in is where up together is building a framework that people need to walk down and say, hey, this is the path towards freedom. Mm-hmm. And if you follow this, then you're going to get free. It's more so the opposite. Mm-hmm. You're following your path. Mm-hmm. You're following your dreams. You're following uh, where your heart desires are going. Mm-hmm. What we would like to do is actually be a voice that listens to you mm-hmm. and actually be there to support. And in this, in listening and support, uh, the newest project in the in the world of Up Together is the Moving Up Together podcast Mm -hmm. that I was blessed to uh, be active as a producer on this project and uh, help the ideas and the wealth and richness of these Mm conversations of community members across the nation. So it's people from Boston, people from New Mexico, people Mm -hmm. from Vegas, people from right here in Detroit as well, uh, all just sharing different journeys. It was a brother from Seattle. I was Mm -hmm. like, man, I didn't even know brothers (laughs) moved from a brother from Chicago that moved to Seattle and is talking about community engagement and community work that he's leading there. Uh, It's it's been a rich experience just learning uh, the, the ways that people are approaching developing and finding value in who they are beyond quote unquote what's in their bank account mm-hmm. not valuing valuing one another materialistically but mm-hmm. more so values intrinsically right. all of the podcasts have different lessons uh it's a segment in there where they you know where they're giving game and that game Free as game. i'm always <laughs> speaking about that game um you know game is information per mm-hmm. se but mm-hmm. uh it's deep because some of that free game given are just things that you can apply right now. Uh, and, and those applicable lessons, what can be practical, what you can do right now, it's empowering. So mm-hmm. the Moving Up Together podcast, talk a little bit about that and the vision of it because the vision was from you. Yeah, man. Uh, we, we work with a lot of projects up together, and I will have to say that the the podcast project has been one of my favorite projects to work mm-hmm. on. Um, we, we, we talk a lot about changing narrative and really uh, being creative uh, in the ways and the opportunities that we explore to, to really do that. Uh, and so we develop a lot of mechanisms. And so I think, you know, uh, a few years ago, we were having a conversation around, you know, some alternative ways that we can um, uh, deploy in order to really um, get the message out there and really uh, accelerate the narrative change um, that we're hoping for. Um, and now I just got fresh out of a podcast that I was listening to. And I was like, this is, you know, these podcasts that I listen to on my way to work or when I'm on a road trip are very informative. Uh, and I know a lot of individuals are getting to podcasts. I think it would be great uh, if Up Together had our own podcast. Uh, and then long story short, that that idea uh, came into fruition because we just have an awesome team, um, our MC team and just the 
entire organization has been supportive of the effort. Um, but we see this as an opportunity to really elevate and highlight the voices of the people, right? And so we are really just amplifying uh, the stories that are taking place all across the country. Uh, and, and we know how important uh, controlling your own narrative is uh, because uh, narratives really shape policies. As director of policy and practice, you know, one of the biggest hurdles uh, that, that I have and my team has is really um, – you know, facts aren't enough for some people, right? You know, you can, you know, show all the data around poverty. You can show them the numbers around, you know, what it looks like to invest in in, in people uh, and the outcomes associated with that, uh, what we call our strength-based approach. Um, but some people are just so entrenched um, with their beliefs uh, is that, you know, these individuals are poor because they deserve to be poor, because there's some failing on their own uh, and, and not a systemic cause. Uh, but when you hear stories, uh, like the stories being told on the movie, up together podcast, you really begin to see that that people are moving up together on their own and 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 really really highlight the the role that the other stakeholder groups can play. Not only up together, but the community, the nonprofit sector, the philanthropic sector, even government. You know, what role do all these stakeholders have in supporting the work that's already taking place on the ground? Uh, and so it's just really um, inspiring to hear all the stories uh, and to really just challenge that narrative that, that people don't care about the community. They don't care about uh, social and economic mobility. Uh, we do. Our community uh, uh, cares very much um, about accelerating uh, their communities and their, their households. Uh, and so, you know, what would it look like when we as a society invest in those efforts uh, on a continuous basis? Uh, we believe that if that word comes to fruition, um, that our country, um, our city as a whole will, will prosper. Uh, and, and so it is our, our goal to make sure that that comes to fruition um, in the podcast is just one effort in that regard. And, and really, we really hope people, you know, tap in and just listen, um, hear the stories and, and really think about as an individual or as a member of an organization, uh, what you can be doing to really help change and, and, and challenge some of those uh, deficit based narratives that exist uh, about our communities. Um, and then beyond uh, changing narratives, you know, what can we do um, as a community in spite of these deficit-based narratives, in spite of these systemic barriers? How can we come together um, to rise above them? Well, we've been doing that since we've, we've been here, um, but how can we accelerate that by uh, engaging more of our community members uh, and really just, uh, you know, coming, coming ar arms in hand and, and really working together? Uh, instead of individualistic. Um, I know a lot of individuals, you know, kind of want to make it on their own, uh, but we none of us can do it on our own. And so we really just want to highlight the role that community plays, um, but also the role that uh, these systems play uh, in holding people back uh, and making sure that we, we change that. And, and, and you spoke to quantitative analysis mm -hmm. or data. So mm -hmm. that's the numbers, as they right. say. And, and I, 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 a lot of adages or uh, quotes get under my skin. Mm. Numbers never lie is one of those big ones that gets under my skin because numbers and statistics and data and yeah. analytics can be manipulated <laughs> yeah. to tell a story yeah. almost in a framework any way you want to. Hence, that's why there's qualitative mm -hmm. analysis as well because qualitative analysis is harder to strip when a... You can look at some numbers and you say, well, you know, obviously because they have poor education and, mm -hmm. you know, they're they're unmotivated. You see the drug use over there. Mm -hmm. They're 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 not, 
you know, they're they're poor because of those circumstances. And then you get some qualitative analysis to couple with that. Mm -hmm. And then a person says, I had a very detrimental accident at a job where I was not hired in long enough where I could receive my benefits. Mm -hmm. You know, I have such hard pain where, you know, uh, I could only see a doctor twice. And uh, the best suggestion the doctor gave me was to seek uh, some treatment through marijuana. So now I'm using marijuana to deal with the pain that I'm dealing with from the injury I faced you know, driving in a car accident where a brother without insurance hit my car and, you know, and, and they're saying that it's my fault and I'm stuck. I can't work right now. I'm, 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 using, um, I'm using trees or I'm using marijuana as a mm-hmm. way to deal with the pain. And I'm trying to right set and deal with this. Like when you hear that story, you, you look at the, the quantitative analysis in the quotes by a person and you're like, well, damn, that's a whole different story. That's a different reality. And then we look at these stories as so many people are dealing with circumstances like this. Uh, When we look at the systemic racism that Mm -hmm. does exist around us, Mm -hmm. that's where the beauty of the podcast gives higher context of people that are thriving, uh, recognizing the challenges and the hurdles on the field, but still saying, okay, I'm not going to allow these challenges to pigeonhole where I can go. And I'm going to thrive through this, but not necessarily look at the, um, you know, look at this uh, triumph through tragedy as the champion story. Mm-hmm. More so look at it like this is the way of life that I'm living with, but I'm still honoring the fact that this is unfair. Yeah. You know, and those are the stories that really start to, as we say, stick to the ribs of people. Mm-hmm. Hence the qualitative mm-hmm. balances the quantitative. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, uh, and and you're right. It's not just in policy. It's just stories in people's minds. Uh, as I've been studying so much more about war ever since this whole Ukraine conflict and mm-hmm. like d- diving deeper in it, the one thread of truth in most wartime conflicts are it's usually some type of event that's qualitative that engages Everyone in whatever that war is. It's mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor. It's, um, you know, the Gulf of Tonkin. It's, uh, it's uh, the, you know, I remember the original Desert Storm. It was a, it was a speech given by, um, by a young woman talking about how, how atrocious the people in Iraq were. And, and sad to say, a lot of this is propaganda. But, you know, but still, <laughs> these stories are what connect people, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, to this is the response of, of, of how we're going to respond, you know, and it can sway, you know, Senate, Congress and presidents to to now move forward with war, warlike actions. But the same things happen when we think about initiatives in communities around how communities are either invested in or divested in. As you talk about uh, valuing valuing places and things over people, usually uh, you know, usually uh, per capita, uh, a majority of the time, this is happening in places where poverty is experienced. Yeah. Places and things are more valued than people. Mm-hmm. Whereas in places where poverty does not is not as rampant, people mm-hmm. are valued yep. a whole lot more than places and things. Mm-hmm. And, and you can see it with the 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 way that the the you know the public works works. 
public work spaces, communal spaces, uh, the, e even school systems. Like all of this plays a role, mm -hmm. you know, uh, wh where, you know, it, it, when when you look at, uh, you know, a different school district and an impoverished school district, things like where are we going to get the money is something that's brought up always. Yeah. Well, even if you look at crime, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the communities that are safest aren't the the communities that are m more police. Uh, they have more yeah. resources. Yeah. And so that's those that's at the point around investing in people um, as, as a uh, determining factor in some of the outcomes that we want to see. And, and so I'm glad you mentioned, you know, propaganda, uh, right? Because mm -hmm. propaganda is just one way to control the narrative. And so, you know, if these global powers recognize the importance of narrative, um, we should all also recognize the importance of narrative and the role that it plays uh, in, in, in assisting us and achieve some of the things that we want uh, to happen across the country as well. Um, when you're inundated uh, with negativity, right, when you go on social media or you turn on the news, you know, robbery this, murder this, carjacking that, um, you know, that does something to the psyche, right, when you're constantly being fed negativity. Um, and so I think one of the goals of this podcast is to really be a, a, a bright light, um, not only for our external state stakeholders, but more importantly, for our members, our, our community, um, for them to really hear those stories of individuals like them from communities that they come from of success and triumph not that it was all easy or there wasn't struggle um but you know how they were able to accomplish the goals that they set out you know how do we continue to tell those stories and how do we continue to challenge the powers that be um anyone in a position of privilege has a role i believe um in order to make our society better uh we can't just i just can't just care about kofi or my family i care about my community and so what are the things that i can do what can you do what can we do um as a community to uplift one another uh, and, and tell those stories and hopefully inspire others uh, to do more of the same. Uh, we know this is taking place uh, in communities all across the country. There's a lot of great work right taking place right here in the city of Detroit, mm -hmm. and it really isn't often talked about. Um, you know, it, you know, we we make uh, we may get a you know two minute clip here and there. Yeah. Um, yes. But the negativity dominates. Most um, definitely. The bleeds the leads kind of thing, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and and so I think that does something to a community, and so we have to continue to develop ways to tell our story, and that's why Detroit is different. Uh, it's so important. Thank you. Uh, because you know the work that you all do here uh, is really changing the narrative as well, and highlighting those individuals in the community doing great work. Uh, and hopefully giving them support that they need in order to continue that. And, and, and so much of it, when we think about this, um, you know, back to that point, propaganda. Mm -hmm. Capitalism itself, and I've gotten on this, this debate many a time <laughs> with many people, and this whole idea of rugged individualism, mm -hmm. and to a degree I'd even argue democracy, they're all kind of in that, but more so this whole idea of a rugged individual and capitalism, it's, it's, it's propaganda. It's, 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 it's a myth. So, because, so, so this idea of I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and nobody else helped me and everything like that. I mean, even if we ask our former president, that is the framework of which he'll say it. He will not say, well, 
you know, my father mm-hmm. was a multi-billionaire developer mm-hmm. that basically became a multi-billionaire developer because we went through my grandfather that was a multi-million dollar developer that was given free land in the quote-unquote Pacific Northwest where he ran what is to believe to be like a... Um, an uh, end stop. Uh, he ran a hotel that they said like kind of doubled as a gambling spot in mm-hmm. brothel that uh, that that ended at a roll, r- railroad town. Mm-hmm. And you take that money and then the, the, Donald Trump's father moves to New York and he's like, OK, we see uh, a browning and, and blackening of this New York region. Let's create a suburbs over here where black people don't live like this is like the the study of their wealth. And all of this money was funded through government based for programming. There you go. Their their money was given. Go. Their property was given through mm-hmm. government based funding. Mm-hmm. So you leverage this. You 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 leverage racism. You leverage uh, you know whatever white illegal, privilege, yeah. yeah, white privilege, yeah. illegal activities, mm-hmm. and then you turn around and you say, "Hey, I did this all by myself." Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's like, yeah. uh, where did you get it? Where did you get it? You know, Little Caesars Arena is built, but it's built on the dollars, tax dollars of, as you say, one of the poorest cities yeah. at this size and scale. Yeah. And, and and then. Then, you know, the, the the Illich family will come around and say, hey, man, we're doing great. Little Caesars, as I don't know if people recognize this right now, Little Caesars is one of, I want to say, competing on pay, on competition. I want to say the largest pizza company in America right now. Mm. So as you're watching TV, and you're wondering, like, damn, what happened to all of the Pizza Hut commercials? Because Little Caesars right now is the leading pizza industry. You can go across the world, you're going to see Little Caesars. So uh, on on the same leverage where they're getting loans extended and they don't mind using loans to develop in different places to do their business, Mm -hmm. they're going to rely on the city to give them money even though now they're in in such a – a, a business advantageous point where they're still exploiting mm-hmm. they're still exploiting public assets and public resources mm-hmm. to to function and make their real dollars in profit hence i say this is social it's it's socialism it's, for the rich it's socialism mm-hmm. for the rich yeah. and it's capitalism for the poor mm-hmm. so to even call this capitalism like I always argue, like it's so distorted. Mm. Supplies never met demand. Mm. You know, there's no too big to fa- if there's too big to fail, there should be too small to fail. I mean, any economist could make the argument. You know what I'm saying? A person that started, you know, if 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 our little cousin started lemonade stand, why do they deserve to fail when you know, uh, you know, Wachovia doesn't deserve to fail? Mm-hmm. Or Bear Stearns doesn't deserve to fail. Or Wamu doesn't deserve to fail. It, it should be the same across the board. Hence, this is a distorted reality in the first place. And really, when we get to the root of the start of this nation, as I always say, mm-hmm. the start of this nation was started upon a criminal enterprise, as my dad always says. Mm-hmm. Because um, even, you know, the the the, you know, I guess you would say. <laughs> the United Kingdom, which stole all of their wealth from other nations mm-hmm. and co- colonizing and things like that, mm-hmm. basically lent from the Western banks money to for America to start. And then at one point in time, America, you know, kind of did a backdoor deal with Portugal and, and, and Spain and some mm-hmm. of the other nations and said, hey, if you give us enough money, we'll kill these redcoats. Get them off the island and then we'll start trading sugars and whatever goods with you instead. 
we got free labor here, quote unquote, mm-hmm. my people, your mm-hmm. people, you know. Mm-hmm. So we got free land. We got free labor. They gave us a loan that we don't want to honor anymore. That's what we look at as the Boston Tea Party or the American mm-hmm. Revolution. So now basically it's like we gone, we stole the land, stole the labor, stole the loan, and now I'm going to turn around and say, hey, we are a ba- nation based on laws and precedent. It's all been a farce. You know, it's ne- supply has never met demand. It's never been a fair exchange. It's never been like an arm's length transaction because the barriers of them to get into business, and I would say even to this day, are not the same barriers that the average person in my circumstance yeah. goes into business with. You know, you drove down my block right now, as you say, like it, it needs context. You know, the as much as certain things are developing in my neighborhood, I still have, you know, the corner house. And I feel people are still stripping that house. People have been breaking into the, the house on the corner. So if you drive to see Detroit is different, the first thing you're going to see is this corner house. And you're going to be like, what's going on in there? It looks like something out of a scary movie. Mm. Like, what's going on on this corner? This is my neighborhood, yeah. you know? And I have a context to it. And people may not necessarily, quote unquote, feel as though it's safe, per se. As they say, oh, let's fight blight. Hence, putting places above people. Mm. When in reality, if... If the assets to fight blight came to my community and was shared amongst our community council, shared amongst the people that live here, I'm not saying that we may not necessarily address what that blight is. But I can tell you this, we're not going to be hiring contractors from God knows West Hill Mm -hmm. that aren't hiring people that look like me, that aren't people from the community. It will be more of an ecosystem where now we're going to work together. We're going to talk together. We're going to engage together. It won't be an outsider coming in taking more of my tax money mm-hmm. to implement something in my community because all that's going to happen next is the next house. Now, by tearing that house down, the property's values change a little bit. Yeah. And now this house becomes abandoned and the same cycle happens over and over again because it wasn't inclusive right. of my community. Right. Yeah. And that's what we need. We need something inclusive of community to empower us. And, and, and some of this can, can drive so many people crazy. And I understand it because, you know, that's the design of America. I have the advantage of who my mother and my father are seeing mm-hmm. entrepreneurship at a different age, seeing different angles, um, empower with the African centered education from Aisha Shule. Um, you know, having books, sometimes just having books around like Chancellor Williams when Mm -hmm. you're a child and seeing that and understanding that, um, understanding the Nguzo Saba and the seven principles Mm -hmm. of Kwanzaa as a guide and a framework. And then even understanding the the principles of Mm Ma'at and, 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 you know, beyond what those Ten Commandments come from. You know, mm-hmm. this is a framework that I'm built upon, but I recognize that a lot of my neighbors necessarily didn't have. And now they're in this psychosis, shout out Dr. Amos Wilson, mm-hmm. of living in America in blackness. And it's tough. Mm-hmm. It's tough. And, and you can feel defeated because you're valuing yourself under their barometer of I don't have enough money. Yeah. I'm living in a, I live in the hood. You know, I don't trust nobody. Mm-hmm. You know, these people are chaotic, you know, in, in, in allowing a, a, a premise of self-hatred to grow because it's in the design of all of what we see in media. It's not reflective of the true values and assets of who we are, which I believe our social capital and our creativity those are what we bring to the table. But in this sphere of economics, which I believe Eurocentric mm. culture in abundance lacks that, 
it's harder for them to tap into that. Mm-hmm. They're not going to honor it the way we do in our community. So it's it's in this journey. It's a um, it's some challenges we face. Yeah, you know? yeah, and I, and I think you know we're we're having a nuanced conversation, right? Yeah. Because you know up together, you know, talks about economic mobility and poverty from a um, holistic point of view. Right now, we're talking about a, a more nuanced conversation within that framework centering black people, black yeah. people uh, in America, mm-hmm. uh, because we have you, a unique set of circumstances, challenges and opportunities. Uh, and so when we talk about community uh, and equity, you know, that that means that um, as a community, we come together to identify what are our, our unique needs uh, and how can our community, how can our stakeholders um, support us in um, getting to those needs? And I know we're going to talk about reparations, right, um, uh, later on, but but that is uh, a unique need um, that, that black people in America um, have uh, because of our circumstances, because of our situation. When we talk about um, the lack of funding, and ed- I don't even call it lack of funding, just the overall lack um, as yeah. it relates to education, um, uh, here in the city of Detroit, I come from a family of you know educators. Yeah. Uh, my father was on the school board. My mother was a DPS teacher. My wife uh, is an administrator with DPS, and mm-hmm. I've I've heard these same challenges over and over again. And, and we are failing our babies. And this is a black city, so we we got to talk about that as well. Um, we are not preparing um, our kids at scale as a whole for success. Uh, and then we, we come up with all these additional programs and supports in order to rectify, you know, what, what we didn't have uh, from the onset. Uh, we, we lack so much. Our babies deserve so much more. Uh, and we have to have those conversations around, okay, you know, how do we address this, not putting a Band-Aid on it? How can we get to the root cause? How can we uh, heal, seal up the wound so we can begin to heal and be able to thrive? Uh, because that is what our community deserves. And so it's going to require not only conversations, but we got to do the work. You know, who are the people in power now? Um, and we need to do a, a fundamental analysis. Do they have the best interests of our community? Um, are they engaging in policies and practice that have the best interests of Detroit, of real Detroit? Uh, and if not, we all get them out of there. Um, but that also requires an elevation of consciousness of the people. Uh, because I, I think what happens a lot of times is uh, we get so apathetic, right? You know, I, mean, you know, I don't want to talk about politics. You know, they all crooks. They all, they don't care about us. Let me just, you know, do my thing and try to, you know, make sure that, you know, my family is good because, you know, working with, you know, the nonprofit sector or, or, or electoral politics is not going to, nothing's going to change. I don't feel the change happening. Um, and it's, it's hard to argue that, you know, when, you know, we, we see the same things happening decade after decade. Um, but I, I, I do believe that there are things that we can do within the system, but also outside the system um, in order to make sure that our community is whole, that our community is safe, that our community is thriving. Um, and, and I think it is coming upon all of us uh, to build the foundation for our children to continue to build on. Um, our children shouldn't have to start over uh, from ground zero. You know, they should be able to continue and build upon the legacy um, that that we're laying down now. Um, and so, you know, those are the things that you and I, we have conversations about, yeah. you know, what does that, you know, foundation look like? Um, but, and I know others are having similar conversations. And so it's going to take a communal effort um, in order to really, you know, flesh that out and really build something um, long-term. Uh, because, you know, the longer we wait, uh, 
you know, the more our people suffer. Uh, and we've been suffering for a long time in this country, and, and, and we, we have a role in order to mitigate that suffering. And, and I use the three, um, and, and we're, we're talking about working on something. The, the, the big three words right now that come to mind when we think of our people, apathetic, mm. misguided, Mm-hmm. And confused, mm-hmm. kind of like a combination. Mm-hmm. And, and and if we're being honest, all of us, and I mean all of us, even those in position, yeah. have to have had those emotions connected to the 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 overall experience because of the onus connected to uh, this role of being black. Which which right now is definitely a good time to to turn into this reparations discussion that has been. A discussion here in Detroit for generations. Shout out reparations, Ray Jenkins, mm-hmm. so many others, mm-hmm. um, and what that looks like. And mm-hmm. you were even schooling me on some of the game because it's like, you know, from a black perspective, it's like, man, it seems like these other races and other groups are getting what they want. And you're mm-hmm. like, well, technically, if we're looking for something from a government entity, it cannot be exclusionary of other groups. And it it will fall into what I guess is labeled nowadays as like catch all policies. Mm -hmm. But how, what does that look like? Why does it look like that? And then sometimes I feel like, man, you know, can't we just, you know, be gangster about it? Can't, can't Mm -hmm. we, can't we, we, we have a cause to action for the wrongs connected. And maybe it not ne- may not even necessarily be as government-based as much as it's so many banks and insurance industries mm-hmm. that were directly involved in the transatlantic slave trade. Families that profited from the transatlantic slave trade that we hold accountable. Now, for this to happen, I- I'm speaking idealistically, yeah. personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I-, I think as of now, like, and it was a couple years ago. Uh, Randall Robinson's The Debt is probably the best read into the study of reparations that mm-hmm. I've tapped into personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so many other works out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, my homeboy, <laughs> white dude, too, uh, Don Hart Jr. wrote uh, wrote a um, wrote almost uh, not necessarily his dissertation, but the paper before his dissertation in reference to exploring this uh, mm-hmm. from Harvard. And, it, and I liked even some of the pieces that he had in reference to it. But... You know, it's it's a very hot topic, and, yeah. and I use it personally. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I use it as a as a as a like almost like a, a jab in a boxing round. Anytime a person runs to office, I'm like, "What's your stance on reparations?" Mm-hmm. Anytime a person steps in my community and says they really want to help black people, especially if they're not black, but even sometimes if they are black, what's your stance on reparations? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and and just to see where they stand Mm -hmm. and and if it seems still so far-fetched because we've seen other actions take place. Please explain to to me a little bit more and share with my audience, Mm -hmm. you know, that are a little apathetic, Mm -hmm. confused and misguided in reference to what this reparations looks like. You know, will, you know, the H.R. 40 bill ever come to life? Should we even look at that? Should we should we pivot from government? Should we just look right at these uh, businesses and corporations that we know still exist? I mean, my bank, good old J.P. Morgan Chase taking money from Kanye West. (laughs) That's a heavy one that was in the slave trade. You know, Uh, Bank of America. Really, actually, every every large bank that you can think of was involved in the trade slave Mm -hmm. trade. Mm -hmm. So, um what where what do you think what what how should we look at this because this is something you've definitely studied and have information on yeah absolutely you know 
there is a case to be made for reparations. Uh, and we, uh, as you mentioned, have been advocating for reparations for a while. Um, now, there are some challenges um, that we face. You know, one is Supreme Court president um, and uh, the 14th um, Amendment, you know, really talks about, uh, you know, the Equal Protection Clause um, and, and when certain protected classes like race um, and religion um, have to fall under strict scrutiny review, which is the, the strongest review standard. Um, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to get into the legalese yeah. of strict scrutiny. Uh, but essentially, you know, a lot of the Equal Protection Clause, which were, you know, really developed in, you know, some of the Civil Rights Acts in order to prevent discrimination, um, you know, two black people are now being utilized to, to prevent oppress us. <laughs> to, to oppress us from getting it. Exactly. Boy, boy, that's the that, that's the other side of this game, boy. America will throw a America will throw a curveball at you. You know what I'm saying? You thinking like, yes, we got something. You know what I'm saying? Like, here's another classic curveball. My bad. The uh, our president, as we call him uh, right now, our our president Biden's crime bill, it had a lot of black support back yeah. then, because in retrospect, the yeah. thought process was <laughs> this will clean up the community. Yeah. We won't have to deal with any more crack. Yeah. yeah. A lot of our I mean, elders that are still alive were deceived by the way that it was used mm -hmm. the same way that I believe a lot of our brothers and sisters that participated in the transatlantic slave trade did not understand what was going to happen to our people because their idea of enslavement was different. A lot of the people then with the crime bills idea of, okay, they're going to clean up the streets. Mm -hmm. They had no idea that it would lead to the massive incarceration in the prison yeah. industrial complex that it created. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, because I'm definitely not letting our current president off the hook for that. Another reason why it's like, oh, that guy. Ugh. But not just him, it's so many others. But it was a lot of black allies that were being uh, propped up in that that were being deceived about how that bill would be executed. Yeah, I mean, we were just talking about narrative and how important narrative is when it comes to influencing policy. And so if the narrative is that, you know, crime is running rampant in uh, our, our, our short-sighted solution uh, to crime is, well, let's just lock, lock, hire more mm -hmm. police officers and lock more people up, yeah. um, as if that is going to solve the issue at hand, if, this, if as that's going to address the root causes. And as we all know, when you incarcerate individuals, you're really destroying households, you're really yeah. destroying families. Um, and then there is a ripple impact um, from those destabilized households um, that, you know, that that impacts the kids, that impacts society as a whole. Um, but it is a short sighted, not even a solution. It's a short sighted reaction. Yes. Um, it is lazy. It's, it's really just lazy. Yeah. Oh, you know, crime, oh, police, you know. And so, you know, the, we, we know there are things that can reduce crime, um, such as investing uh, in people, such as supporting community violence interrupters. Uh, you know, investing in spaces where communities are coming together. But, you know, going back to the reparations uh, conversation really quick. But I, I, I it, see that all is interconnected, absolutely. but continue. continue. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely all intertwined, like many things are. Um, you know, when I think about reparations um, and I think about the feasibility of black folks in America um, receiving reparations um, in our lifetime, in my lifetime, I'm, I'm not really optimistic, you know, to be honest, uh, because there are some uh, extreme systemic hurdles. Um, you know, the Constitution being one, the lack of political will um, being another. Um, 
you know, all that said, when I look at reparation, I think about, you know, the power dynamics mm -hmm. and, you know, what are the levers of power in order that we need as a community to exert our will? Um, you know, we, we, we know America respects, you know, financial power, um, political power. Um, and by and large, at scale, you know, we, we have resources, but we don't have the, the financial might as a community on our, in isolation um, in order to, you know, uh, challenge uh, the beast, right? Um, and then there's political power. Now, we do have a voice in that regard. Um, we can utilize our political power um, in order to effectuate change. And then there's communal power. You know, what does it look like um, to build a movement? Uh, if you had... 35, 40 plus billion black folks and, you know, how many ever allies that we, we had that may support reparations? You know, what if we moved on on one accord in demanding reparations um, instead of saying, you know, let H.R. 40, you know, be introduced and fail time and time again? You know, how can we demand action um, for the things that we believe that are owed to us? Um, that will really benefit us as a community. And so that's what I think about, you know, what are the, the levers of power um, that we can control um, in order to achieve some of the things that we, we feel that we deserve? Um, because we don't utilize the power that we have at our disposal. Um, we're, we're essentially just, you know, begging our oppressor to uh, not oppress us so much uh, and, and apologize for uh, the historical and, and, and current current wrongs. Um, and, and you know, I don't see that working. I, I see we have to really flex, you know, we, we have to flex the, the muscles um, that we do have in order to achieve what we want. Uh, and so I, I think that comes into play when we talk about reparations. There is a growing movement um, around reparations. You you have cities um, across the country that are uh, formulating task force. Detroit um, included. And, and Detroit included and, and a lot of other cities as well. And and so I, I think that that momentum is good as it relates to, you know, uh, highlighting the importance of reparation and building momentum. Um, but, you know, what, what comes after these task force? You know, what are the recommendations and are the recommendations going to focus on addressing the specific needs of black folks or is it going to be more a rising tide lifts all sell approaches and, and and i believe that looking at this the, the same way that um the atrocities we face as black people here um our, our brothers and sisters in africa and the caribbean face some heavy mm -hmm. um atrocities too through colonialism mm -hmm. it was like hey <laughs> you know the the and i i'm not sure like a lot of people are aware of this but many of the uh the narrative back into like it's his story meaning like mm -hmm. he wrote it it ain't our story it's his story so yeah. the the framework of how a lot of people perceive and look to what enslavement was like was not the reality where there were many revolts it was many uh it it was it was many fights backs there were there were uh it was very tough i mean policing in this nation uh kind of starts from the institution of quote unquote slave catching mm -hmm. there was a need for that industry to exist mm -hmm. uh and and now i bring this up because with the passing of queen elizabeth many mm -hmm. of those african nations right now are stepping up and saying hey straight up you know, including with I think people saw that crown. People saw the uh, if you watched her, her, uh, her the funeral, you saw this diamond. That diamond was stolen from mm -hmm. South Africa mm -hmm. and that's being brought back up 
on charges. Uh, France is facing, um, France is looked at for, I don't know if people know this, but like, you know, when Muammar Gaddafi was assassinated and murdered mm -hmm. uh, from our American government, mm -hmm. France stepped in and uh, stole the coffers of gold from, from Libya hmm. and many other things. And right now, a lot of other African nations are saying, okay, you owe us this money. And the, the European nations are saying, we ain't paying it back. So yeah. now the, the African nations are stepping up and saying, all right, well, we're putting taxes upon everything that comes in our in, in from, you know, that comes into our continent or goes from our continent. If you want to continue to do business with us now, they have a different leverage of dynamics, especially mm -hmm. when we think about the raw materials and assets mm -hmm. and, and that changing even in transitioning of leadership there, because I believe the the asset we have and the power we have is in our social capital. Mm -hmm. But for our social capital to truly be empowered, it takes uh, it takes unity and it takes the stripping of the individualism that we've been conditioned with from being in the belly of this beast to being in America, because yeah. America definitely teaches you individualism. America teaches you, you know, put a, you know, stick a stick a dagger in your brother's in your brother's back. Mm -hmm. If it's one be more advantageous for you. Yeah. That's the conditioning of this nation. Mm -hmm. Our strength is our collective. Absolutely. If we collectivize, if we have our social capital, because to me, we set the trends for the world. If you take the black experience away from America. I know this sounds strange to most people, as I used to always say, if you took Detroit away from Michigan, then Michigan's Montana. If you take mm. black people away from America, that strips it of its power, its coolness, its, its, its products and everything. We set trends for the world. Mm. And I know I'm speaking Afrocentricity. I'm definitely speaking pro-black. But you, you, you look at all the trends, because even the trends that, that made America, quote unquote, this pop culture icon. Elvis is nothing but black music. Biggest band in the world, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. What did the Beatles and the Rolling Stones tell you themselves? Mm -hmm. We were studying Chuck Berry and Muddy Waters. Mm -hmm. You know, Big Mama Thornton. These people were taking away the black experience and just putting a white face on it. And it became a billion dollar industry because they want to tap into our social capital and our creativity. Mm -hmm. The the challenge becomes in this psychosis, Dr. Amos Wilson again, read that black power. It's, it's like thicker than like three Bibles, but it's definitely a great <laughs> book to read and tap into. And you should own that Dr. Amos Wilson book because it deconstructs so much of what we're dealing with as uh, black people. And Francis Cress Wilson, Nigley Fuller, so many others, Francis Williams, Claude Anderson, um, you know, Joy DeGruy, uh, post-traumatic slave. You know, it's a lot of information. But in this psychosis, you know, when we feel as though we can uh, rise above the fray of the group, mm -hmm. that's what's destructing, I think, so much of our community. When we recognize the oneness and the power of that social capital, it means something. You know, in, in the fray of all of the chaos of Kanye West or Ye, because mm. Lord knows it could be a lot of chaos <laughs> with Ye. The lesson that I feel that we should we should pull apart the lessons we're learning. And one of the key lessons we're learning is that without his creativity and his engine behind Adidas, it toppled their stock. That's power. That's social capital. You know, he, he comes from a background where his taste making and curation abilities basically took a, a, a fourth tier sneaker company to ascend to competing as a top tier sneaker company. Mm -hmm. 
You know, this is empowering and we need to be mindful of this. And that same type of empowerment, if we choose to disengage from this machine, can can happen for all of us. But it's very it is it, frightening because people are afraid of living in those impoverished conditions, going back to the hood. Mm. I was trying to get out of the hood, but it's like you get out of the hood with this golden handcuff of being of not aligning with the people. Mm -hmm. And what sense does it make? And I can only imagine the unfulfilled nature of heart and mind to know that, yeah, you got a big house, got a couple cars, but you're not aligned with the people. Mm -hmm. Whereas people that are aligned with the people that are fulfilled and it's a fulfilling experience when you can align with the people. And that's really the movement and propaganda I want to start creating. Align with your people. Align with your people. You know? Yeah, man, I, I completely agree. Um, I'm a I'm believer that if you build it, they will come. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we can have these conversations and we can have these conversations with people in our network and we get it, right? We all on the same page for the most part in that regard. You know, but when, when I think about, you know, what about the, you know, we don't, we club near Linwood. You know, what about the, the average brother or sister on Linwood? Mm-hmm. Are they on the same wavelength um, as we are, right? And, Probably not, right? Um, because there's a you know a lot of uh, you know time and education and you know being in the right environments that we were privileged to grow up in that kind of shaped and formed our our viewpoints um, in, in our role around Black liberation. Um, you know that's and so that's why we talk about elevating the consciousness of the people, mm-hmm. but also think there's an onus on us, right? You know how 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 do we as leaders create something? that the people can actually see and want to be a part of, right? You know, when we talk about, you know, you know, someone starts a business and they get national recognition, everyone is support, right? You know, they, when they came out the mud, you know, they we want to support their business or, you know, they, they're an athlete or they're an entertainer. You know, those are the things that we amp up and glorify and we praise. Um, you know, how can we have that same type of admiration for the people that are doing the work on the ground to uplift our people every day? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so if we can create something. Right. You know, if we can utilize our ingenuity and our cool factor to make it make it, uh, uh, you know, uh, make it hip or whatever, whatever term you want to use yeah. uh, in order to draw people and excite people um, to getting involved in this work. I really do think they will come. Um, but I know from a lot of brothers that I talk to and they say, yeah, I, I hear everything you're talking, um, but that's not going to help me feed my family. Yeah. Uh, I have other priorities other than, you know, doing, you know, X, Y, Z in the community. Um, I got to feed my kids. I got to make sure that my household is, is established. Um, and that's a that's that's relevant. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we, we try to make the connection. What, what, what's good for the community is good for the household as well and vice versa. Um, but we have to be more out front. We have to our people need to see it in action. They need to see community winning um, because once they see that, I think they will come. Uh, we can't just admonish our people. And I'm not saying that you were doing that, but yeah. I, I see a lot of times, you know, people yeah. just, you know, oh, they, they voted this way or, oh, they're not doing this. They're not doing that. You yeah. know, well, you know, why is that? You I, know, I, it, <laughs> I, I'm, I've been, you know, for years, I, I've been one leaning as much as I do do a lot of political education stuff mm-hmm. here on Detroit is different. And I've been leaning with many of the allies to say we need to have a discussion about apathy and not yeah. voting. Yeah. Because it's a reason why they're not doing it mm-hmm. and and beating them over the head and saying it's stupid not to vote is not going it's to not make me it. turn yeah. around and say, you know what, yeah. Yeah. I am stupid. Let me go on and get yeah. in here and yeah. vote for Let me go on and work. vote for Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's not going 
to, you know, it, it's, I, I do agree with you. So mm -hmm. it, the, the critique is more a critique of, of all of us yeah. in, in this conditioning and being here in America. And you're right that that relationship does play that role. You know, I do think something practical people can see, touch, mm -hmm. feel. Um, I often, you know, when I speak of this, like, you know, for a guy like my father, uh, that that was a big gateway in this, you know. It was Muhammad Ali, mm -hmm. but Muhammad Ali yeah, was a gateway yeah. to Malcolm X. Yep. Malcolm X was a gateway to the teachings of Elijah Muhammad, mm -hmm. and, and 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 now you develop your own theories and your own application. Like, but it was something that could be grabbed onto. Yeah. And I'm not necessarily saying putting that onus on like uh, that we yeah. need that of today, no, because that was a generation then. I mean, it may be more communal. You know, because because it's, it's a galvanized success when when a person knows of the story of the black mafia family and Big Meech, mm -hmm. you know, and who he is. And it's like, oh, that was success. But that same person, even if we show them the story of the Shrine of the Black Madonna, it's bigger than Jeremoji. It's the collective, mm -hmm. you know. So when does that collective story, when do, you know, the onus kind of falls on me, the storytellers, the mm -hmm. people with this media, to make sure that that story gets told as much as I'm, I'm definitely not taking anything away from Jeremoji, mm -hmm. but the, the, the collectiveness of it is the empowerment. You know, Absolutely. when we think of the Panthers, as much as we'll look to, to Huey and Bobby, you know, Elaine Steele and so many of the others, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's more the it's the collective. It's it's the people that were in those chapters day to day. The people that were that were feeding the children when they were coming in for the mm -hmm. breakfast program. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. that's where the empowerment goes, you know, and, and, and how do we hype and, and, and exalt that, which really is counterproductive of everything in American media and what we've been conditioned to, mm -hmm. because American media and how we've been conditioned is we look to who that person is, usually a man, you know, as this person is just so brilliant and they just sit and walk in and, and just, you know, share a little bit of information and it empowers everybody. That's really not the functionality of how this goes. Mm -hmm. The the success of the civil rights movement and the Montgomery bus boycott, especially that one right there, it took a collection of thousands of volunteers because people were like, hey, I'm, I'm with you with this bus boycott, but I still got to get to work. So now it took the sisters working carpools and, and figuring out different carpools. And I mean, that's that's a lot when you think about, I mean, the I don't know if most people know this, but the Montgomery bus boycott toppled the economy of Alabama mm -hmm. to the point where the most racist governor in the union had to. I mean, it, yeah, in our union had to turn around and beg the federal government for supplies. Mm -hmm. And the federal government turned and told that governor you better figure out how to make this work. Right. It was you that decided to engage in this and you didn't mm. think that they would have the ingenuity to work around this. That was a very effective tool to get a crack in this machine, but it took a mm. collective effort. I mean, you got to think about the, the whole idea of like, Hey, I get off at seven, you get off at six, mm -hmm. he get off at eight and you got these carpools running all day and people not going to be like, Hey man, I got to put gas in my ride. I, I support you, Dr. King, but you know what I'm saying? This Oldsmobile ain't running on water, my G. You know what I'm saying? So now it takes yeah. collective pools where Martin Luther King had to come to places like New Bethel Baptist Church and mm -hmm. say, hey, y'all know what we doing. 
Y'all put this in our collection plate so we can make sure that these cars are running. Yeah. Make sure that those carpools, make sure they got gas. Give them extra money. Give them a sandwich. Hey, they going to wait a little bit longer. They may get picked up long. Uh, uh, you know, you get pick, you get off work at 7, you may get a, you know, you may get your ride around 7.30 to 8, but you don't mind it because you got a good turkey sandwich made by Miss uh, mm-hmm. Martha or something. Like, that was a very strategic, yep. uh, 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 executed Really militaristic, like warlike tactics to execute that Montgomery bus boycott effectively. Yeah. And I want to pick up right there, actually, because I think there are lessons learned um, from the civil rights movement um, that will really help shape, you know, what we need to do um, currently. Right. So when we think about, you know, American history, we think about the 60s and the civil rights era, we think about. You know, why was the community so strong in, in that moment? And it seems like, you know, most people say we were, we were more together then, right, than we are now. Well, you know, the racism was a lot more overt then, yeah. right? And, and so when, when the racism is in your face, right, and, and you feel it, you know, I think that is a driving factor in communities coming together. So to, to bring it back to, like, present day, when we see a, 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 a police killing of an unarmed black person on camera, right, there's a lot of traction a lot of media attention everyone in the city every if you know all black folks know what's going on right versus well if you don't see it it's pretty much crickets right if it's not caught on tape you probably won't hear about it uh it, at all right um but when it's one video right uh when and, and then going back into the you know the march on selma when you know you know where folks were beaten on a, a Emmett pettis bridge right and, and those 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 shots those steals were broadcasted across the country in the world you know that's when things began to change because you know, we, we saw it happening, right? You, when you see things happening, when you feel things happening, I think it's a lot easier for folks to galvanize in order to push for change. And I think that's the really the sinister aspect of um, American racism is, is now a lot of it is covert. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is in the policies and practices in the behaviors of these institutions that aren't visible. Right. Well, well I, I like to say mm-hmm. it's on cruise control, too. Mm. So it, it can even be black faces enacting yeah, that too. racism towards black people. Be, and when I say it's on cruise control, because there are boxes, there are there are policies. You know, my homeboy just texted me something on uh, on on Airbnb mm-hmm. where like basically uh, a lot of the questions were questions around like, will you be frying food and things like that? <laughs> it's like, hey, are they trying to ask him? I'm like, then the, then the owner just went out and said, uh, you know, just give me some of the background information, age, background, race yeah. Yeah. of who's who's interested. And this is like, I don't know if anybody's ever went to Airbnb, but usually you put a bid out for Airbnb and then the owner like may send a message to you and say, hey, are you in town for a conference? No parties or whatever. And then they accept. But then he was like, hey, I'm about to put in a racial discrimination. Um, uh, I'm putting in a racial discrimination, um, I guess, grievance with a- Airbnb ab- around this. Mm. But before he was asking all these other like questions. And that's the thing. It's a lot of it's a lot of um, that covert racism. You, you, you feel it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And, and and you can't really pinpoint it the same and then you bring it up and then people are like well you know i mean they may just you know or, yeah. or will you will you be playing rap music i mean that may be a legitimate question because or will you be no it's like will you be playing music with profanity in it mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying and violent references and you'd be thinking to yourself like mm, i don't know well, like is this airbnb guy being racist am i tripping am i not that's the covert thing it, it's like you have yeah. to 
it messes with your mind a little bit more. Yeah, and it's and, it, and it's almost a form of gaslighting, right? Because you're like, mm-hmm. well, is this really racist, or yeah. do they really care if I fry chicken or not? You know, what I'm <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot different than you know saying no, no n words no allowed, yeah, right? Yeah, no yeah. blacks allowed, right? Yeah, that that's abrasive. That's up front. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone knows that's wrong, but now is more covert and so there's you know they get a there's a lot more leeway um in, in that regard and, and we see the same thing happening in, in policies that disproportionately and negatively impact black people right yeah but it's not over right and, yeah. and, and so it's kind of hard to challenge right and then when, when we have conversations with our community members we try to explain the 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 the, the, the web um you know that is in some of these policies and these things that are making this is complex and it's complicated and a lot of people tune out right because yeah. they you know they aren't going to the city council meetings they aren't reading the the minutes of you know what's happening and so it, it's it, it they can kind of get lost uh, and i think that that is the danger um uh, because that that makes it more more sinister and more more impactful um uh, because it, it is covert um, and, because, and, yeah. and then also in this propaganda the other narrative of these champion mm. I, I, I call it that's the american the american ethic is the champion ethic mm. so meaning that you know one will be plucked out Exalted as a champion, mm. why can't you be more like him? Yeah. Look at uh, Ben Carson. He did, and, it. and why then can't you'll you? get yeah. And then, then Ben Carson will That's come on stage and say, "Hey, I did it." You know what I'm saying? I was going to Cooley. You read my gift in hands. I was yeah. stabbing a guy. I was in a gang, and now I've just switched over to neuro- neuroscience, and I'm the best brain surgeon on earth. And I'm such a good brain surgeon. I'm gonna run HUD, mm-hmm. even though I don't really know anything about urban development. But you yeah. know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, I, you know, that's what I'm yeah. doing now. You know, yeah. and and then you look at it and you're like, well, I'm black. And I grew up in an urban environment. I guess I can run HUD. You know, these are some of the some of the ways in my mind that champion complex can also chip away at what's needed for progress. Yeah, yeah. I call it the you know exceptional Negro. You yeah, know, you know, he yeah. was able to rise above circumstances. Why can't uh, you? And then achieve greatness. Why? Why can't you? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, and, and I think a lot of you know, I don't think it has to be a Ben Carson or anyone like that. I think a lot of us have adapted that ment- that mindset as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I oh, grew, my, very you, much so. You know, oh, I grew up in the city of Detroit. I had to get out of the mud. Now I made it, and so now I'm going to look down, you know, on my people um, because we had the we were educating DPS, and I was able to do this. So I have no sympathy or empathy for the people who haven't made it. Uh, and so, you know, that's why, you know, you know, when we think about white supremacy or the the, the notion of white supremacy is that it's, it's a mindset as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it can be, you know, wrapped in black face, you know, as you yeah. you know mentioned earlier. And so I think it's important for us to really, you know, continue to have conversations like this um, and, and really challenge those that, you know, that have that that mindset and mentality, um, because it is, you know, kind of this American, you know, regular individualism uh, yeah. that we, we buy into um, and I think you know as you know descendants of African people we really have to get back to that communal spirit uh, and, and really working with one another to uplift our community as a whole um, and and also but on the individualistic side as, as well you know when I have you know on the what is it called uh, um, on the micro level you know there are things and I you know have this conversation with you know my, my younger family members like yeah I, I know it's messed up but you can't let that stop you from you know achieving your goals and dreams but on the systemic front of things I still have to say okay well these are systems that were you yeah. know created that make it a lot harder and, and it shouldn't be that way and so we have to 
you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. But I think we tend to be lopsided on the individual side of things. Like, oh, we, we have so. to do this on our own versus, you know, challenging the systems that make it harder for us. Uh, and, and I think we need, you know, advocates on the systemic side um, in order to help us as a whole. Uh, and we just need not it doesn't have to be uh, elected officials. In individuals that you know it may be an organization uh, it may be the individuals that are working for the elected officials a lot of the success that we've had and really you know really uh, shifting um, some of the deficit based policies mm -hmm. uh, to more strength basis come through having conversations with uh, the cities that have an equity office where there's an aligned person that you know that oversees the health and human services department and, and working with those individuals to really change their policies within their scope of influence um, that really and then you know build from there yeah. and so there are and, and things that we can do all you know all over especially here in the city of Detroit um, yeah. we just have to really tap in and, and move as one in that regard and, and, and I'm gonna leave on this parting shot of that same thing it sometimes it's the cultural it's the cultural competencies like mm -hmm. you know um, you know as we're seeing more dog parks and bike lanes and and and, and we're seeing uh, micro breweries and things that culturally speak to the group of Detroiters that they're looking to attract. That man, ain't say a what lot you mean, like man. me. Say what you mean, white folk. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so that same cultural competency, when we think of quote unquote professional spaces, it's mm. not the same way. Yeah. So we need to be when we're in those spaces, we do need to speak up and say, hey, you know, the way in this design is not really set up for us. I've sat in many meetings where I've gone downtown and gotten kicked out of many meetings too. Mm. That's that Kari Frazier. Maybe it's the edge in the way I say it, because Lord knows I can put a foot in my mouth many times. But um you know, I've sat where we've talked about poverty and, and, and connecting to the community, but I'm in a renaissance center and I have to go through four security guards before I even get here. And I'm like, OK, this already disorients whatever you would get from me anyway. Mm. I'm on the block with the blighted house down the street. Mm. A lot of my people are used to this. Mm -hmm. So you should come to my community if you want to engage in my Absolutely. community. Something simple like that changes and disorients things, mm -hmm. you know, instead of me being uncomfortable and you want to engage with me. You take on some of this discomfort. Mm -hmm. You be in a space where it's not bike lanes and dog parks and microbreweries. It's my community. It's things that are, are, are either circumstantially here or maybe by choice here. But either way, it's not what you're used to and what always makes you comfortable. And I'm going to have to accept this discomfort to engage in this machine or engage in the beast. And from their perspective, though, you know, why? If I'm going to win anyway. If I'm gonna get what I want anyway, you know why? Why? Why engage in equity? You know why? Why come to the community um, if I'm gonna win anyway, right? You, it's, it's it's one thing if they were aligned, if they were already like-minded aligned, they would be doing that anyway, right? Where's the power? You know how do we how do we make that a reality? You know how do we leverage the power that we do have as a community to to force our will instead of asking for it? Um, you know this is American. Is 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 unfortunate. Um, but you don't get a lot um, systemically, you know, without leverage, without leveraging the power that you have at your disposal, whether it be, you know, financial, political, you know, people, you know, lobbying, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, where's the power? Because if you don't have power to back up uh, a demand or call to action, um, you, you are really working from a, a deficit. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a believer in that we have to exert our will 
um, and and really realize and, and hone in on the power that we have as a collective. Uh, because if not, we'll, we'll just keep getting ran over for real, for real. That's deep. On that point, because Lord knows I got more tags, y'all already know. But I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much. <laughs> man, appreciate it. I feel like we, we covered a lot. Oh, we, we <laughs> went all topics, over the man, But I enjoyed yeah, the man. conversation. Appreciate you having me. All right. Peace. Peace. Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit Is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit Is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store.